Welcome to 600 Pixels, a podcast that goes below the fold of the World Wide Web to see how professionals in the industry design and build better digital experiences for everyone. I'm Travis Self, a front-end developer here at LifeBlue. And I'm Caitlin Studley, Director of Culture here at LifeBlue. This week on the podcast, we've got Derek O'Dell. He's a resident product developer here at LifeBlue. He's talking with us about the concept of workplace safety in the digital industry. So we have a really interesting conversation about the concept of Anzen, which is a Japanese word for safety, and the process of engineering it into your culture. There's some good stuff in here, so let's give the conversation a listen. Well, welcome, Derek. Thanks for taking the time to come and chat with us. Uh, For those of our listeners who are not familiar with you, Would you like to give us a brief introduction and maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up being uh, just really a champion at LifeBlue? I don't even know how to describe your job. Who is Derek? The doer of all things at LifeBlue. I I wear a bunch of hats. Yeah. That's my job. Right now you're wearing a Cadillac hat. It's got the Cadillac emblem on the back of it. It, Yes. It is also backwards uh, for context. Very casual around here. Very it, ch- it changes position. I think a lot of people who work with me notice that the position of the hat dictates what I might be in the middle of doing mm. or what the current situation is. Mm. So, so it's like that? a status, like a kind of yeah. It's so like a it, cheat code. Like you already know, if you know to look for the hat, you can figure out what mode Derek is in: good mood, bad mood, funny exactly. mood, exactly, work mood, exactly. So serious. So, so what kind of mood are we in right now? Casual. 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 We're cash. Okay. Keeping it cash. Yep. All right. Well, tell us a little bit, bit about yourself. I can't talk. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, coming up on eight years at Life Blue now. Whew. Eight. Eight. Um, I have worked in a wide array of positions at LifeBlue. Anything from PHP development to um, leading teams in project work, uh, being a TXP. Um, I have worked on the CX team doing solution design, um, being in charge of the look and feel of a project and how it was going to be executed on by teams. I have worked in the capacity of um, client liaison and helping guide the client through what um, a project stage and status is going to be at any given time. Um, I've been a part of QA and making sure that projects are getting launched with as few bugs as possible, uh, making sure that they're getting fixed accurately and correctly. And most recently, I find myself working um, in long-term product development, web apps, um, properties that LifeBlue wants to hold on to um, and explore business ventures in areas outside of purely web development. Cool. Um, Where were you before LifeBlue? What were you doing? So before LifeBlue... I spent nine years at uh, Cyan Worlds, which is a video game developer up Mm -hmm. in Washington State. And when I worked there, it was in the QA department, 
it was in the audio department, and it was in the um, gameplay programming department, uh, developing the Myst series of computer games mm. on both mobile and desktop platforms, um, working on their MMOs, their um, single-player games, their mobile games, so on and so forth. Very cool. Yeah, when I heard that you had worked on Myst, that's when I said, you know what, I should start paying attention to this Derek guy. He might be interesting. He's a legend. And you said the audio department too, right? So were you adding like sound effects and, and stuff, or were you like working with the soundtrack by Robin Miller, by the way? No. Do you know Robin Miller? Yes. You know him personally? Humble brag. Uh, he, he did not work at Cyan when I worked there, but he did come for visits being a yeah. related to Rand, who is the owner, president of the company, creative director of the company. Um, the games that I worked on while I was there, the audio was done by a composer named Tim Larkin, who is an amazing guy, and I loved working with him. And there was a sound audio engineer who was there, whose name was uh, Chris Clannon. He was also a wonderful guy to work with as well. My role with them was more as a implementation and developer. So one of the games that we worked on was right around the time where um, audio equipment in computers was moving up to a new level of fidelity. And so when your character would do things like walk from an outside area into a cave, we were able to dynamically change how the audio played, reverb settings and um, you know various other pieces of how the audio worked. And so it was my job to create the triggers and the areas in the world in the 3D assets for the game to set those settings up and then to walk um, Chris and Tim through various areas of the game, show them what I had created, get their feedback on whether, you know, wow, that sounds a little too hollow or this is a little too boomy. Let's take this down. When was music supposed to trigger? When were voiceovers supposed to trigger? At the time we actually, um, we were lucky enough one of the games to do facial and audio sort of mocap type work mm. with, um, David Ogden Stiers. He lended his talents to one of the games. <clears throat> and so I would take his VO and line that up to the character animations and the facial videos that he had supplied um, and make the characters come to life. Well, talk to us a little bit about your tenure at Life Blue. I guess, you know, going a little bit more into how you have made that transition from game development into the world of the web, which is fairly different, I would imagine, especially considering in an agency, the pace of work is a lot different. So where video game development tends to, correct me if I'm wrong, be a much longer project structure, sometimes multiple years until a game launches, switching from that and then coming into an environment where it's agile, it's fast paced, it's iterative, it's much different uh, to be able to create a, something like a website, which can take months and maybe sometimes years, depending on how big the project is. But 
typically there are even milestones that are built in that are much shorter than that. So I'm curious to know a little bit about that transition and maybe how that's factored into what your role has evolved into over time at LifeBlue. Yeah, you're absolutely correct with uh, some of the timelines there and, and how that how the differentiation between the two industries worked. Um, I would say that's actually one of the reasons why I was so attracted um, to this job, to this company, to the industry and how this has gone. Um, you know, initially the, the video game industry is very much a, a job that gets coveted by a lot of people who are not in it. You know, you, you want to always be, that seems like such a cool place to be. And once you're into that industry, it's very easy to stay there and to, um, you know, to continue working with companies that do that kind of thing. Um, so to leave that industry and to go somewhere else required a, a you know, sort of a reason for the direction. And one of the things that, that I found um, very welcoming personally by moving into the agency lifestyle was that idea of a faster work pace. The idea that I can create something, try something, experiment, um, you know, work with a new concept or a new idea or a new technology and not be burdened or stuck with it for the next several years. That it was a faster way to iterate through things that I found interesting, challenges that I was trying to tackle, so on and so forth. The industry as a whole moves at a breakneck speed. The company itself moves at a breakneck speed. And it allowed me to um, ideate and iterate through, you know, a lot of things very quickly um, to help determine, you know, what's what goes well, what doesn't go well. How do I need to think about things differently the next time this challenge rolls around? Um, and it's easier to for me to see, analyze, adapt, and change when it's moving quickly. So you were saying that um, we move at a breakneck pace and we move very quickly and, you know, sometimes that means working a lot of hours and whatnot. I, I'm assuming that was the, the, the same at the, the gaming company, Cyan. I've heard that the gaming industry is kind of notorious for burnout, right? Because people work horrendous hours at game development places. One of the things that you talk about is this concept of like workplace safety for tech is that something that you started to think about when you were in the gaming industry or when did you start to kind of formulate that idea and then what does that entail like a quick summary of what that means sure so the the concept as i first started to become aware of it and to um think through and figure out how I could apply to my work and, and the, my coworkers around me um, is referred to as engineering. And I was turned on to this by a um, college professor that I had. Um, it was a coworker of his who ran a blog and talked a little bit about it. Um, but the idea you know, as you mentioned, was really about creating safety in the workplace for the tech sector. And um, I was aware of some of it during the time that I was working at Cyan, uh, but really didn't start to think more on it um, until arriving at LifeBlue 
um, and putting in some years here. So did you see things start to happen to some of your coworkers or yourself where you're like, hey, this is going to maybe we need to start talking about this and making it part of our culture to ensure that burnout doesn't happen or that you're looking after yourself? Yeah, I think that's that's potentially a small aspect of the totality of it. I mean, you know, I think I think on one hand it's very easy to identify how you think about safety in the construction industry. You know, you think about a hard hat, you think about um, OSHA and how, you know, various structures need to be built or how machinery needs to be operated. And like, and, you know, take your 30-minute lunch break or whatever every sure, hour, sure. hours, get yeah. up and walk around, that kind of thing. So on one hand, you can, you can make some direct comparisons to the tech industry. We talk about hours worked and burnout. We talk about standing desks and mm-hmm. office snacks and the amount of caffeine that gets consumed and, you know, all, all these Mountain kinds of Dew. things. Sure, sure. Yeah. So much Mountain Dew. They, they, they can right. translate over in that regard. But I feel like that is only 15% of it. When I talk about workplace safety, more often than not, what I'm talking about is the way in which the company and the employees within that company operate on a daily and long-term basis to run that company, to develop the products, projects that they are working on, and how the outcome of that work affects the employees and the company. So um, when a company says that they are they follow a full agile process or that they have scrum masters or that they operate with um, extreme programming techniques or or any of the I don't I don't want to call them trendy that's got a negative connotation but um, when people talk about that style of an office place or that style of environment or that style of working that attempts to solve, in some ways, what engineering also attempts to solve. I've never heard of extreme uh, so programming. Ex- what is that about? Extreme programming, um, I believe, is a more umbrella term for a couple of different styles. So are you familiar with pair programming, mm-hmm. where you got two people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. one keyboard and mouse? One keyboard? Yes, one keyboard. Oh, that sounds challenging. <laughs> so are you saying you have to split, you have to like... So I think I mean, we, we kind of do pair programming here, but we don't really mean it in that way. Technically, what what I believe the official way to do it is that what they call one person the driver and one person the navigator. And okay. you've got one person who is mentally talking through how they're going to solve the problem. We need it to do this and we need it to do that and A, B, C, D. The person who is driving with the keyboard and the mouse is trying to do less thinking and more actual coding and they're following the direction of the person who is putting out the ideas um i thought i literally thought you meant one person is the left hand and one person is the right hand that would be like, an, that would take a very long time that would be an amazing way to program that it. Seems yeah. that's where my for some reason that's where Slightly my brain went to when you said <laughs> that it's like that's that's not good so anyway uh, so you're saying that there's these you said trending is not necessarily the right word to use, but... These are all different ways to approach creating efficiency in the workplace. 
and some of the ways that they attempt to solve this. And I think in some respects, you know, everything's going to be about the context of the situation. In some respects, these things are going to be very successful in certain offices. Um, I think one of the ways in which you can find the most success with that tends to, in my opinion, happen in larger corporations where the chain of command is much, much larger than what we've got at, at Life Blue or what we've had at Cyan, where a small company, you know, sub 100 people, you know, that, that type of a company is set up to allow for um, a different set of ideas. So in the case of engineering, the thought process is about creating an environment where anybody in that chain of command has the ability to um, create a discussion around why something is happening and why they may feel unsafe because of it. Engineering is meant to protect um, some core tenets of how this is going to work. And that applies to both um, the company, the employee, the person who may be funding a project, whether that's a client of the company or an investment group or, or what have you. Um, and it's trying to protect the money that is put into the project. It's trying to protect the resources, the employees who work on the project. It's trying to protect the company's time and investment that they're putting into this, um, their reputation and how they work on things. All of that is part of the, the holistic picture of what engineering is. And so for any given situation, being able to evaluate that from a number of different angles is very important. If we make a decision to skip developing this particular feature, who is ultimately benefiting from that? And how did it affect everybody? The programmers had to work 20 less hours this week. The client lost $300,000 worth of business because the feature was not available to their customers. The company was able to make more profit by completing the project faster um, with less deliverables. Each of those things in isolation means something positive or negative. In totality, that situation is never going to be black and white. It's always shades of gray. How do the employees at a company take ownership in the decisions that they make as individuals and as a unit to evaluate what that shade of gray, that, that totality of the context, um, what came out the other side? How do they evaluate that? How do they understand that every decision should not be about trying to maximize the profit for the company should not be about doing every single feature or um, whim of a client or of a customer base, should not be about refusing to do any work that causes them to work more than 40 hours a week. There's got to be give and take in all of this, and everybody has to work together collaboratively to figure out how to evaluate these things. So knowing when to say no or when to pivot on a project or when to make certain decisions about a project. When is important, 
but I also think that the context of understanding what the consequences are of that decision, you know, um, refusing to do work or accepting more work is not intrinsically the right or wrong answer. It's always something that has to be evaluated. And the evaluation of these things, number one, shouldn't be done solo. It should be a group discussion. Number two, should be evaluated from all sides because it affects more than just the people who you can see as you're doing this. So you're you're sitting in a postmortem and you're talking through these things and it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that this is going to affect more than the people who are just sitting in this room. Everybody's opinions during a meeting like that are going to tend to gravitate towards something that's a little more self-centered. Here is what the office environment was at the time. Here is the hours I had to work. Here is the good and bad days I was having. Here is how successful I felt about it. That's only part of the output of what happened here. You know, there, there is an entire aspect of this that can be measured through analytics and metrics, through customer install base, through profitability for the company or the client. And those are, those are difficult concepts to talk about spur of the moment when, when you're getting together with a group of um, team members, coworkers, you know. Um, so trying to keep an eye and a mindfulness to those ideas empowering employees to understand how to have those conversations. It's something that developers, designers, uh, employees at a company should be concerned with. You know, I, I think there's, there's levels, obviously. I'm not, I'm not saying that they need to know the ins and outs of the QuickBooks application or any of that kind of thing. But, you know, a general understanding of how a company operates. Yeah, and understanding your impact in that greater picture, right? You can be a better developer or a better anything if you understand how your salary is paid. Exactly. You know, how what's your efficiency? What's our, you know, what's that greater picture look like and how can we by making these small changes uh, or improvements and looking out for each other, how can we be better stewards of the business through the work that we are doing? Sure. And I mean, you can apply that, you can apply the, the other side of that room as well. So when you talk about managers in a company in the technology sector, um, is, is there not a stereotype of how they measure the efficiency of their developers who are underneath them? You know, isn't that a common source of complaint or or a chiding that it's not about the number of the lines of code that a developer committed or whether they participated during a stand up or, you know, how many hours they were in the office versus telecommuting. There are ways for a manager to understand the efficiencies of their team and their employees outside of those cold, contextless stats. And engineering sets the ability and the empowerment for people to have those discussions and to be able to work together to establish how they're going to do those things. Business practices will tell us to set KPIs 
or SMART goals or OKRs or, or whatever we need to do um, in order to make sure that we are progressing and achieving what we want to. Engineering doesn't stand in the way of that, but it seeks to have every member of the team up and down that reporting structure understand why those things were chosen how they're going to be implemented so that they protect the safety of the people, the money, the company, the time, the client, all of those things, because they are all important to that equation. And forgetting about any one of them is a detriment to all of them. So I feel like the the real key point for me is that developers, um, I, I urge developers to really try and view things from multiple angles, to take ownership of the place that they work and to have an interest in more than just their um, their build up as a professional developer, to be involved in their workplace, to be involved in the company, to know and learn more and take an active role in helping to guide companies and departments to um, you know, a more collaborative, better place to work. I think that's really, that's the best way forward out of any of these things. I think it's got the most upside potential. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that this is an enormous conversation we're obviously trying to tackle in quite a short uh, period of time. So I think that our listeners can probably look forward to future episodes where we can revisit this conversation and and probably duke it out over where companies should fall on the spectrum and and what their responsibilities are in terms of their own business and you know uh, their obligations to their employees and what that looks like across the industry. But we are very grateful that you took the time today to kind of share all of this info with us and your philosophies about engineering and and workplace safety in the tech industry. So. We definitely look forward to having you visit with us again soon. Of course. Thanks. If you are interested in following up and maybe internet stalking Derek, uh, he is not on the tweets and the Instagrams really, uh, but you can look him up on LinkedIn and uh, shoot him a message in his inbox that he will probably promptly ignore uh, since he's too busy taking care of things at Life Blue and wearing all the hats. But yeah, if you want to learn more about Derek and his career, feel free to check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, but until next time, thank you for joining us, Derek. Thank you. Thanks, Terry.